Hello and welcome everybody to the webinar here today. The point of the webinar is to cover the most common questions that we get every day here at the Family Office Club, but also answer your questions live to see what you specifically have questions about. Could be anything related to capital raising, the family office industry, could be related to um, how to get started and raise your first million dollars, or how to go from raising 10 or 20 million dollars a year to 100 million dollars a year. Um, so I hope you'll enjoy the first introductory comments we're going to be going over, and then we're going to open it up for questions. I'd like to pause for just one second here. If, if you could introduce yourself um, in the text message stream and just state what you're raising capital for, what industry you're focused on, whether it's storage or senior living, and just post that within the message chat stream, uh, that would be great. And then that way I can frame some of the examples I give so that they're most relevant to you. Uh, so please do that now if you're on the computer, and we're just going to wait for 10 or 20 seconds here for a few, few of you to start posting that, and then we're going to start moving through a couple slides and jump right into the questions. Great. I see many of you submitting the topics now. Awesome. That'll be helpful. So I'm going to be, as you guys continue to submit some of those, I'm going to be going through a few slides just to frame the conversation for today. Some of you have been to several of our live events, and I recognize a few of your names here, uh, but other ones of you are new to our brand and new to the Family Office Club and CapitalRaising.com. So I want to give a little bit of background. Um, first off is that I'm the founder of the Family Office Club. I started it 12 years ago, and I really put together this platform and community to get together Family Office investors with those who are raising capital and to share best practices on both sides of that equation. What I found is that investors really appreciate it if you know how to raise capital effectively because then you don't waste their time. It's better use of everyone's time. And investors are looking to get deals done. They want the best deals possible. They want to see a lot of deals so that they can pick out the top 1% of them and invest in those and not an average deal. That's why at our investor summits, which we do 11 times a year, we don't pay any of our speakers to give a keynote talk. We don't get a famous professor or a famous TV social media personality. We just get investors who are looking for deals, and they wouldn't be there unless they were looking to get deals done. So at the Family Office Club, we do 25 events a year, half our capital raising workshops, half our investor summits. What you see on the screen here, if you're following along on the computer, are the capital raising workshops we currently offer, uh, which is CapitalCon, which is 30 people talking about how they've raised 100 million or more. And you hear from those 30 people in a single day. We have our investment pitch prep workshop, which used to be called Marketing Material Mastery. We go all over your materials. We then have Capital Raising Catalyst, the fundamentals of how to raise capital. We're having that next Wednesday in Toronto, if you're listening to this live. And then we also have our Investor Influence event. And we'll be developing more variations on these workshops as we go. We've done almost 40 of them now, and we've done 114 live events over the last 12 years. So a lot of the insights you're hearing from today is hearing hundreds of capital raisers speak on stage, seeing 6,500 people a year flow through our events and seeing who's raising the most capital, who's not raising capital and what's common among them, what investors are complaining about every year. We have 300 investors speaking at our events alone uh, during the next 12 months and over the past 12 months. So just hearing the common complaints and desires of what they want and how they want to be communicated to gives us a lot of raw material of insights for those of you who are raising capital. So here you can see some of the books we've published. Many of you might know 
us from our book on capitalraising.com, which is free to download if you haven't gotten it yet. If you're new to the family office investor space, it's really a wealth solution for the ultra wealthy. If you're worth 10 million, 30, 50, 100 plus, then you need different solutions than somebody who's worth $100,000 or 1 million. And if you want to learn about the basics of the industry, you can get our free book on family offices at familyoffices.com. All the books you see here are available on Amazon for as little as we can offer them there. We don't try to make money off our books. We just try to spread them far and wide to add value first to people. And then you can also visit those two websites I just mentioned to download free versions. Um, one question from Vincent I see here already is about fundraising methods being focused on family offices. We know a lot about the family office industry but all of the ideas we're talking about today are really going to be helpful for raising capital from all types of private investors, including angel investors, um, but also above the family office space to uh, institutional investors as well. Probably 90% of what we're talking about is going to be relevant uh, for that space as well. So I think that um, everyone here is going to find things they can take away from the questions that we're answering here. And essentially what we're going to be going over here and what we do in our workshops is share what we've learned over the last 12 years of having a 10,000 foot view of what's going on in the investor marketplace and with capital raisers. So we see who's raising hundreds of millions versus who's not raising anything. We see what the best of the best are doing. And probably most importantly is that we see that a lot of people are going to be um, looking to raise capital um, and not have done it before. You probably started your firm and it's going to be challenging to raise capital if you started your firm because you're good at deal making or sourcing deals or negotiating deals. Um, you probably didn't start your firm because you're excellent at raising capital. So that's an important point and why this education is needed. And if you're really specialized in knowledge on how to raise capital, then you're going to go farther and you're going to get more done and you're going to be able to make more progress every hour uh, that you move forward. Uh, I see Christy's asking about the slide deck being shared and yes, we're happy to share that. If you want to send an email over to Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S at familyoffices.com or just simply to team at familyoffices.com, he can reply and we can provide the, uh, the slide deck as well. And uh, feel free to continue submitting questions as you go here, as uh, questions come up. All right, um, so feel, feel free to continue uh, asking questions as they come up. The last point here is that we have 100, we've done 114 events now and done 257 reviews of pitch decks and we've created over, it's about 250 assets now within the pitchdecks.com division of our team and that's where a lot of these insights are coming from today. Uh, if you are already a charter member in the Family Office Club, you probably know that by completing uh, your charter membership application and becoming a charter member, you get a free review of your marketing materials every quarter, review your pitch deck, give you feedback, your one page or your website. We say what we would do if we were in your position to raise capital and we help you really dial things in to be more effective. And that's just one of the benefits of being a charter member in the Family Office Club, which is a private club made up of 1,750 investors. And we've got uh, close to 1,000 subscribers. And uh, to become a member, it starts at just $1.99 a month. 
Here is a quick one-pager on pitchdex.com. Um, when I say that some of our insights come from this division, we just launched in Q4 last year. We have, I think, 18 or 19 clients as of today. So we just had somebody, uh, a couple of people register this week to get started with us. And it's really working with somebody who's at ground zero or has already been raising capital and being a one-stop shop for getting their pitch deck, one page, or logo website knocked out and do it so it's not just looking pretty, that it's effective in the marketplace and it's going to help them raise capital, which is not something that most graphic design firms can do. Um, and we found that to be a lot of fun working with clients, and we've gotten to know some of our members very well through the pitchdex.com division. Through today and our live workshops, the whole point is to give you an unfair, consistent, competitive advantage in the marketplace. Um, and the strategy should stack on, on top of each other, so you're doing many things that nobody else is doing. That's your direct com competition. And by doing that consistently over a long period of time with focus, you stand out to potential investors and attract them instead of always chasing them. One thing I want to start with before we jump into questions in just uh, a minute here is that I found, and it took me about a decade to realize this, I don't know why it took so long, but no one ever talks about this, I found, and it's that there's really three trust curves that all deals must move up to close. There's the trust curve of leadership, who you are, who your team is, the trust curve of the industry, do they understand the industry you're in, and the opportunity at hand. So if they always invest in stem cells or self-storage, and they know the industry well, or they've used a self-storage facility before, it's going to be that much easier for them to invest. If they've gotten a stem cell injection into their knee, they're going to understand the very basics of the industry, and they're more likely to be able to invest. If they're local to an opportunity, or they can somehow move up the learning curve on the exact opportunity very quickly, um, then that is a reason they might invest quicker. And the big takeaway here is that you shouldn't go into any meetings or be targeting any investors who are starting at ground zero on not knowing who you are, not knowing your industry, and not being able to understand the opportunity or do due diligence on it easily. If you are, it's painful. Uh, hopefully, you're going to investors who are already up one of these curves. That's why people start with friends and family money. And then you go into the meeting knowing which curve you need to move that investor up. If you saw our email newsletter this morning, you probably saw this mentioned there. Here's another slide that's going to come up today, I'm sure, which is just uh, what investors to target and who to target at what level. And this just kind of shows um, that at the startup phase, you're not targeting institutional investors. You really need to get to usually 70, 100 million, maybe even a couple hundred million before you go the institutional route. And a lot of people start with friends, family, angels, private investors, and then the family office space is really the middle ground. And they can write those middle-sized checks of, one to three million, five to 10 million, and you know, 25 million and up and start allocating almost like an institutional investor on some level. All right, I have some questions that we can go through. Um, I've got eight of them typed up here, which are the most common. These questions are ones that we get from the 6,500 people coming to the events each year, the 40,000 interacting with our team. Um, we've got about 100,000 members in the Family Office Club on LinkedIn, so we've heard same questions over and over again, but we've also seen some questions can really prevent a lot of pain and lost momentum and lost effort and energy. So we're going to make sure we cover a couple of those. Um, but if you'd like to start submitting your questions uh, through the chat, um, looks like we've got you know 160 or so people on here, then I'd, uh, I can take your live questions. I'd rather do that than go through my canned uh, questions. But as we wait for more questions to come in, um, I can start going through some of these top ones. 
So the first one is where do I find investors who want X? So we've gotten this question many times before and essentially people are always saying, well, how do I find an investor who wants uh, a mobile app startup company or a Bitcoin opportunity or a cannabis opportunity or a multifamily property in Philadelphia? And the weak answer would say it depends, uh, but there's a few things that it depends on more than just about anything else. Um, essentially what we've found is that if you are trying to find a investor who wants to go into, let's say, um, a mobile app uh, type opportunity, then you will need to find people who had exits in technology or find people who have had exits in the mobile app space and they'll be able to add a lot of value to you and not just be a investor who's coming in as an LP, who's just getting an allocation. Instead, they'll be adding a lot of value from the strategic insights. They might be able to source deal flow from you, make connections for you, get you distribution. Um, also, I would say that if you look at the three trust curves, who already trusts you a lot, who already knows the industry and they want to be allocating into the industry more, who's on the boards of publicly traded companies, look through the Inc. 500, Inc. 5000 over the last 12 years on Inc. Magazine's website, get that historical data and give it to some uh, data worker on Upwork.com and they can create a database for you uh, of companies that are in your space and have grown over time and have likely had exits if they were doing $30 million in revenue 10 years ago, you could look up what happened to them and build your own custom database of both local and highly qualified investors. So the other response to this question, which I think is even more helpful, but takes a more long-term approach, is that when you are looking to find an investor, if you can reverse that and know your target investor so well that you know where they congregate, where they often go, what associations they're members of, um, where, what they read, what newsletters they follow, what podcasts they listen to, um, then you can be where they are and you can figure out how do they find you when they're looking for how to invest in biotech or best biotech investment funds. There could be angel investor groups focused on healthcare, on biotech. There might be magazines that they read and follow. There, they might be uh, associations they're members of. And I see uh, Suzanne just mentioned biotech. That's why I gave a couple examples on that. But the more focused your area is, then the more focused um, your investor segment and your targeting needs to be. But you can always zoom out half a layer. So it doesn't need to be that you only go to people who had exits in biotech at least if they're in healthcare or medical devices where there's a lot of exits going on all the time uh, or biotech, but you could zoom out to the healthcare level and at least they have a general thinking framework for what's going on uh, in the space. And that's going to really help in uh, getting, uh, making progress and uh, investors who are going to hit the ground moving on, on being helpful to you. Um, if you have trouble with the audio on your computer, feel free to dial in. The phone number should be right there on the software that you're using to, to watch this right now. So uh, please dial in if you're having any trouble with audio on your computer. Got a question on what's your best advice on how to line up various investor requirements in a deal? For example, I have two investors where one is happy uh, with their returns and the other one wants something a bit more robust. The satisfied investor is bringing in 750,000 of the 1.2 million. How do you align these different asks? Uh, and do you start again and look for another investor to fill that equity gap? Depending on what your attorney says you're able to do with different share classes and custom agreements, 
Um, I just find that so many capital raisers never get up to speed. They're stuck at making 10 mile per hour progress or they don't make progress. The deal doesn't get closed. They lose it. It hurts their reputation. I would just get the deal closed and satisfy them by adjusting the terms and be long-term greedy. Don't be short-term greedy. If you can within your legal docs, adjust it. Then I would just do that to get the deal done because I think there's a far greater danger of just not getting up to momentum and what you make on these uh, on your deal number three and four is going to be dwarfed by what you could make on deal number 12. So I think it's just important to keep the momentum going and build the relationships and not have just a cookie cutter one size fit all. And I'm glad you asked this question because one thing that we always like to cover at our workshops is that a lot of single family offices are entrepreneurial and private investors who are self-made medical practice owners, business owners are very entrepreneurial as well. So going in there with a two and 20 term sheet or 7% pref with 30% of the performance fee being taken um, and say, this is how we work, take it or leave it, may not work well with the most valuable investors you could potentially connect with. And it's important to know that with family offices, you might just need two to three new relationships per year and it could drastically change what you're doing. And it might be equal to getting 40 new private investors. So it's not about getting big volumes and emailing 800 people at a time. It's about building real relationships, meeting face to face, doing a video call instead of an email or instead of a phone call and, and adding value first and planting those seeds because they can really pay off and grow over time if you nurture them. There's a question from Darren. I attended the summit in Miami as our family office super summit it sounds like and linked up with an investor there who was one of the speakers at the event. Um, He's having difficulty getting a funding commitment. Any strategies to further engage? It sounds like you already did fly to Denver to meet and look at properties. So that's definitely a good first step. Anything in between not meeting in person, I just think a video call is worth five times a phone call these days and probably 20 times an email. I have a hard time uh, keeping up with emails. I know a lot of investors do. Um, I don't even have time to uh, reply to a lot of voicemails. I have to leverage my team for that. And I know investors are the same way, if not worse. But having a video call de-risks them picking up the phone, halfway listening, and then they might be very busy. They might need to kill off an email instead of really actively engaging with you and listening. And a video call de-risks that happening uh, for a large part. You know, For example, I have the video up here which shows me talking. It's pretty hard for me to kill off an email well, someone's talking here without it being obvious. You can hear the typing. You'd have to be real good at muting it every, every then and, and, not, and looking like you're engaged. So the video call is really critical. And then sending printed out materials instead of digital can really help. And I think just taking a long-term view. Um, I understand in some cases you might engage someone as a consultant or an active advisor that's under retainer. And that's very different than courting an investor for a long-term relationship. So uh, that is, that is an, uh, an important difference. What is my opinion about 506B and C filings and who has platforms to facilitate Reg D filing with an attached BD network to look at our filings? Um, I do know a great syndication attorney uh, that I'm working with right now on a project. She's done about 300 syndication legal docs. We don't represent her. Um, I think she's sponsoring a couple of our events this year. That's how I got to know her. Uh, but in getting to know her and seeing what she can offer versus others, I just see that she's highly focused on sponsors, independent sponsors, and also has a big strength in real estate. So I like that when I got to know her. So I, I, I selected her for some of the work that we're doing with legal docs. But I think 506C is the future. 
um, because then you don't have to worry as much about general solicitation. If you do the filing right and you follow the rules and make sure your investors are accredited and keep that paperwork in, in place uh, for the long term, it allows you to, if you wanted to, post something on LinkedIn about the offering or post it or talk about it in a podcast and not be worried about getting in trouble from the SEC about soliciting investors you don't have that existing relationship with. Uh, we're also excited about the fact that the ultra-wealthy all are on social media, just like normal high net worth and normal human beings are. And so I, re I think there's a real future in, in companies doing 506C as a standard in that um, I know several groups that are raising 14 million to 40 million a year, one raised 75 million all through having a podcast. I know a group that's big on social media, their goal is to raise 100 million this year via 506C just over the internet uh, through social media marketing. So I think it's a wave of the future. And at our workshops, we talk about how Warren Buffett says, you know, sometimes the tide matters more than the swimmer. So if you're on trend and you're behind the momentum and where there's opportunity where it's not already overcrowded, you're more likely to succeed because you're playing off that trend within the niche that you know well. It's not about chasing cannabis and opportunity zones and blockchain and just chasing the latest hot thing that changes every 24 months. It's about looking at your niche, your DNA, your expertise, figuring out uh, what unique capabilities you have that you can bring to the marketplace and making sure you're playing within the trends and the tides that are flowing in your direction. Um, Christy, if you want to, if anyone wants to email me for the attorney, I'm happy to connect them, connect you with that. Uh, just shoot us an email at team at familyoffices.com and we can get you connected. Um, there is a question about 506 regulations. It said 35 non-accredited investors can be allowed. I really don't want to get into the legal parts of it. If the laws change and I comment, I could mislead you. And then if you break the law, you know, shame on me and I caused you pain and suffering and losses and maybe a lawsuit. Uh, and then I probably put myself in danger. So um, I want to stay away from technical legal questions, but uh, most people I know are doing 506C, uh, not B, if that helps. And I think I might have another question up above. Oh, Christopher is asking about the website upwork.com. At upwork.com, we've hired probably 90 professionals. We have four working for us full-time now, and they'll help do things like look up legal listings of companies or assets we want to acquire and figure out who owns them and reach out to them. Um, I've used services like that for editing books, for helping with technical issues in the company before we had a chief te technology officer, et cetera. And Upwork.com is very helpful for that. Let me see if there's another question up above that I missed here. One main hurdle, uh, after having a meaningful conversation with investors, they go dark and stop responding. That's a great, great question, Mark. So that was one of the top questions that uh, I was going to cover for today. And essentially, this can be caused by many, many things of why an investor doesn't respond after the conversation seems to go well. From my point of view, uh, we want to be helpful to everyone who is a charter member of the Family Office Club and even to people that just download the book from CapitalRaising.com and aren't a member yet, because if we can help you and you get an ROI on that, then you know, we're on the same team on adding as much value as possible, so you'll want to be a member for the long term in the Family Office Club. Um, and we can help you get more specialized on capital raising. And, but that said, uh, we see 6,500 people come through the events and we interact with 40,000 a year. A lot of stuff just looks the same after a while. They might think that you're a nice uh, individual, that you seem professional, 
focused, but if they've heard it all before and it, you can't explain what you're doing in a way that's truly compelling, unique in the marketplace, just what they're looking for, solves a pain point that bothers them every month or every quarter when they're looking at their returns, if you don't stand out among the ocean of people competing against you, then they might say, okay, well, interesting, yeah, I'll keep it in mind. Um, and it might be one of the three trust curves they haven't moved up yet, or it could be that you just look like a lot of others that are out there. And the issue is that the sophisticated investors see a ton of deal flow. The private investors you might have started raising capital from maybe don't. They might look at six deals a year and they're excited when they get to look at a deal and they're like allocating to 30% of the deals they see because they don't see too many. That might be very different from you. You might, again, outside of your niche where you're investing, you might only see six deals a year. A family office might say 50 or 200 or 500 deals a year. They can't allocate to 30% of those. They're allocating to 1% or 0.1%. So they see such a river of flow, it's a unique perspective than perhaps your daily uh, vision on the overall investment space. Because even if you get great deal flow, it's in your niche of stem cells or self-storage or biotech. It's not within all these different areas. So it's really critical that you know yourself, know your competition, know your investor set, and then the context of all that, narrow it down to a single sentence on why it matters that you exist on planet Earth and really dial that in and every word you use in that sentence matters but the great news is almost nobody does this we've reviewed 257 pitch decks we've seen maybe two dozen people that actually have a one-liner and half of them were horrible and we tell them that in a nice polite way and say you have to work on this and improve it but when you get that one-liner down you can put it on the, the front page of your pitch deck you can put it at the top of your one pager you can put it on your website you can leave voicemails using it you can use it in the subject line of an email or the first line of your email you can use it when you're shaking somebody's hand in the coffee line at an event. There's many different ways you can use that one-liner. There's no reason not to have it. Um, even if you're just starting out or you've been in business for 10 years, I think it's really critical and makes everything more effective and useful. Let's see some other questions here. I've been meeting with institutional investors and they're generally not interested in a fund investment, but they're very interested in direct investments. Any thoughts on terms and structures from Ryan? Yeah, so um, it's interesting you say that. I mean, typically institutions have been forced to go through funds because they can't afford the one-off due diligence, but the trend is moving to them doing direct investments too, just like family offices. And for those new to the space, direct investments just mean that they're literally investing into the cap table of an asset or through an independent sponsor, so they're approving things deal by deal versus allocating, say, a million dollars into a private equity fund and your trust in that private equity fund is going to follow their mandate well and allocate across seven deals and hold on to those for seven years till an exit. Direct investments is more control, more transparency, and it's been the big trend for the last five years in the space. We probably have five times the level of conversation about direct investments at our 11 investor summits this year than we had just five years ago or seven years ago. But in the institutional space, um, it's usually just the smaller institutions or the really innovative ones that are asking for those direct investments. And in terms of structuring, you need to work with someone who can help you legally structure it. But in terms of fees, a lot of people are doing a 6 to 8% PREF, and then they take, say, 20, 25% fees. They might have another hurdle of 10 or 12%, and then they take, you know, 33 or 40%, sometimes even up to 50% of fees. But that is kind of the industry standard, and there's many things to comment on related to that. First of all, if your team is a two- to three-person team, less than a seven-year track record, less than a dozen deals done, you're not an industry standard level of being developed as a firm. So I wouldn't charge industry standard fees. 
I would charge something that gives you an advantage. And it's something that I wrote in our email newsletter this morning, uh, which you might have read, is that the, the smaller you are, the more focused you need to be. It's more credible to say, we buy hospitality assets in this four square mile area of, you know, let's say San Francisco, and that's all we do, and we're aggregating assets in that area, which is a real hotbed for tourism, versus we buy hospitality assets in five different states, and our three-person team is excellent at doing that. It's just not credible or believable to say that. And I first found this when there was a global macro hedge fund that I was working with, and they only had six people on the team. They're all based in the U.S., and they're competing against people that have 200-person teams and 12 people born in China who speak Mandarin natively. It's hard to compete against their assessment of what's going on in Asia and in China and the culture, the government, the trends, etc. So the smaller you are, the more you need to focus, and that's going to raise your credibility and your effectiveness. And in terms of structure and fees, most people just have what everyone else has. Why not have it work for you, have something superior, something that's more well thought out? I think that's really important, and I think that um, you'll hear, if you come to our events, you'll hear about different fees on stage, performance only, co-GP deals, systematic seating or systematic LP contributions, uh, JV equity, uh, sometimes there's an anchor investor or different share classes. Sometimes people charge no fees and they just bump up their GP uh, equity, so they might put in 10% of the amount needed on the equity side, but they syndicate at a higher valuation, so their 10% turns into 16% of the deal, and then there's no other fees, and that's a really lean fee model. And so the more you can be aligned or long-term greedy, the better, because almost nobody does that. Everyone does industry standard fees, and they're just hoping that the private investor they go to will accept that, but if you want people to lean forward, and listen more closely, then you really have to have unique, compelling aspects to what you're doing. Not only a unique focus and strategy and way to add value to your space, but combining that with a great structure and unique fees is just there's no reason not to do it. Like, why else are you in business if it's not to close new investors and close deals? So it's a waste of your own time to go out there looking like everybody else. I've got a question from Ramana, and I'm going to scroll up, so I know I missed a couple there. How would you... Oh, uh, how would you properly use the family office database? And I'll, I'll answer yours as well, Ramana. Um, so with the database, the worst way to use uh, the family office database, we offer that at familyofficedatabases.com. We've got angel investors, single family offices, institutional investor contact details, and Excel spreadsheets there. Um, the worst way to use it is to blast them and hope that 5% reply and then 1% get on the phone and then half of those convert. That doesn't happen. These are the same busy investors that if you found one on Google and then you found 12 more and then you just blasted them all with a blanket email, you're not going to make progress. It's all about meeting in person, developing a relationship, seeing what they invest in, seeing what common connection, what city are they in, when are you going to be in that city next. And every time you buy a plane ticket, you can use the database to book another couple extra investor meetings. This is something that, you know, if you're playing a short-term game, then you really should not be on this webinar and you shouldn't join the Family Office Club because the ideas that we can help you put in place will for sure make you more effective at raising capital and make you make more progress. And we can take someone going 35 miles per hour and get them to 50 or 60 miles per hour, but it takes planting seeds and doing things the right way. Family offices don't want to work with people that are too stressed out, too rushed, only care about the next 30 days and otherwise 
you know, they're not polite, they don't listen, they don't add genuine value first. They don't have, really have time for any of that. They don't have time for someone that doesn't take their own firm seriously and the relationship seriously. And I've just found in capital raising, no one will take you more seriously than you take yourself. So if you don't have a logo, if you don't have a one-liner, if you don't have a pitch deck, you don't have a one-pager, you know, why should someone take the time to meet with you if you haven't taken the time to figure out the one sentence on why they should meet with you and why you matter? And essentially, there's no way that you can expect an investor to figure that out and know in their heads what's the one, the one reason why this is really compelling if you haven't done so for your own offering. Uh, Ramana's question is, family offices go in as an LP uh, or only GP side of the deal? So typically, uh, the GP is the person that found the deal, structure the deal, they're going to work the deal post-close. They might use a property manager or consultants to help them manage the deal, but the GP is a side that's acquired the deal. And usually they put up 5 to 10%, sometimes as much as 20 in the equity portion needed and then raise the rest from LPs. The GP has more liability, they have the control. The LPs typically have their risk limited to the amount they invested in the deal and they're really looking for upside based on the efforts of somebody else, which would be the GP. Investors can come in on the GP side if they're adding lots of strategic value, if they source the deal, or if they're just negotiated, hey, we want to be a co-GP on this deal, they might be a special class of co-GP where they may or may not earn fees off the LPs as a normal GP would. That's negotiated between them, um, but that is a trend negotiating these co-GP type investments. Let me scroll up here. I'm, I'm pretty sure I missed a couple here. Uh, Leslie, a client looking to raise capital but doesn't want to give up equity. I told her she'll have to pay a large multiple on the $2 million she's looking for. What would a typical multiple be when they get no equity? Payback is projected to be within three to five years. This is a great question. The more secure, the more collateral you have in place, the more track record that you have. Like um, if you're a 12-year-old company, and you've been doing seven figures in revenue since year two, and you're doing eight million a year in revenue now, and you just need to raise two million dollars, and arguably at eight million in revenue, let's say you have a 20% profit margin, so 1.6 million in profits per year, at four times profits, you're worth 6.4 million dollars. So to borrow two million against that company doesn't seem extremely risky, depending on the industry that you could be in. Uh, based on the industry you're in, it could or could not be risky, but the point is that you could structure it potentially as a debt note, and you could say, we're going to pay you a, at minimum, I would say 8 to 10%. If you're having trouble getting the raise done, I'd pay 11 to 13%. And you could pay them back as a debt note with interest and principal being paid back over a four to seven year period. Uh, I've done it uh, shorter terms as well. Um, and by doing that, you're not giving up the equity in your company. If they say, oh, we really want a piece of the upside, you can just give them a few shares or a half a percent or something. It's just kind of like, okay, you're on the board and maybe they just want... But I think that that is um, an important thing to consider the debt note. The other way to approach it potentially would be as a royalty. We've done two gross revenue royalty deals uh, myself uh, and we're looking to do another one to two per year and that would be you go into a deal and you say, hey, we want to provide you back a royalty until you get 1.5, two times your money back, and then it'll be a lower royalty, and you just have a little bit of equity or equity warrants. Um, you know, when I am doing deals as an investor, I prefer a royalty to a debt note, um, but it just depends on the situation, what makes the most sense, and what you need to do to convince the investor to come in without taking any equity or without uh, much equity. 
see here, I have a question from Chris, it looks like. One-liner, value proposition, something catchy, controversial, memorable, provocative, or thought-provoking. So what Chris is asking about is the one-liner and what should it be. Uh, it's fun at the Investor Summits, we do something called Rapid Reaction and we get investor feedback on the audience's one-liners. So we'll collect 10 or 20 before the event, and then we'll have people say it on the microphone. And there's always some humor that comes out of that. You know, usually the investors are pretty polite, even if someone has a really bad one-liner. But when you hear 20 of them, you really hear which three or five sound dialed in and are well thought out versus are stumbled through, sound like a paragraph. If there's any chance to ever use humor in your pitch deck or a meeting or the one-liner, it's so rare for somebody to do so. I would always encourage that. But the other important things in a one-liner, the most important, is that you say something tangible, credible, hopefully verifiable, like a number. We've closed 17 deals, or with our 18-person team at the Family Office Club, we've served X number of families, or we have 228 million of assets under management, or 3,200 doors under management. The more tangible, credible, the better. You never want to say anything that sounds like everyone else, or that's confusing. You want to tell them what you're doing and hopefully why you're doing it in a more compelling, excellent way or how you add value. What's your secret sauce? And if you look, some shortcut ideas is look at why people say no or why they've said yes in the past and make sure that is in the one-liner. So you're either killing their top objection or two or appealing to them because they want those monthly dividends or they like the collateral behind your deals. Those are some things to look for. In general, you don't want to be competing against everyone else. You want to define your sandbox tightly, and your one-liner should reflect that and the investor avatar you're targeting. And then the ideal goal is to say something that not many other people or nobody else can say. Like if you've been doing 42 years of senior living investments only in Florida, that's pretty strong. Almost no one can say that. And some people that don't normally invest in this space might say, wow, that's, that's an excellent long-term commitment. Maybe we should meet with them and uh, get to know what they're doing a bit more. Question from Demetrius. We're an independent oil company seeking an established internal system to raise private capital. Does a family office club or our team work with members to establish an internal fundraising system? Uh, yes, we do. If you go to pitchdex.com, we could help in many different ways. Um, most people come to us to get their pitch deck, one pager, one liner, investor avatar, a whiteboard explainer video, their CRM dialed in, their social media dialed in, etc. But we have a chief technology officer here and we can help on a higher level with whether it's podcasts or publishing a book or getting your internal systems processes dialed in on a, in Asana and having your standard operating procedures there or a one-page plan for raising capital. We do that and um, obviously that costs more than just doing a pitch deck, but if you go to pitchdecks.com and fill out the form there, we can chat with you about that outside the webinar. Another question here, how to stand out with a mortgage fund to get a meeting with a family office for an in-person meeting. Any thoughts? Uh, yes. So I'd figure out where are you closing deals now and where do you travel often uh, and then figure out uh, what two or three cities you should be raising capital from that you could get to in a two-hour commuter flight. You could even maybe drive to one or two of these cities and then really get things dialed in there. In the past, are all of your investors law firm partners or dentists that have their own practices? Or are they people that came from an estate planning network of some type? Are they all medical professionals? And if you dial it into who they are, then you can figure out where they go and what they consume and be part of that network. You could volunteer to lead a nonprofit. You could start your own investor network that meets up locally. 
You could tap into local angel investor networks. You could look on Google and LinkedIn for people that have the words holding company, single family office or family office in their company names. We've learned a lot from running familyofficedatabases.com for the last 12 years and we're really just taking a thousand hours of effort of if you look everywhere in LinkedIn and Google to find all the investors in a certain area, we have people that do that full-time and we have a four-person full-time team focused on that, but you can do some of that yourself for some hyper-local uh, networking. It just takes a lot of time and effort and then there's, there's tricks of the trade and software tools we've found to, to figure out how to get more complete contact details. But the main thing you want to do is, is change the mindset of instead of going to a lake and saying we're going to try to catch some fish in this lake and you're swinging the net into the lake as you see a fish swim by, you want to relax, sit down, look at the lake, not rush in there swinging around the net, figure out where the water is flowing and then position yourself like a grizzly bear so the fish are jumping towards you versus you chasing them randomly in the water and then you're going to have a much stronger offering so you can dial everything into your potential investor. And an example of this is this group called MD Wealth Management in Canada. They manage over a billion dollars because all they do is manage wealth for physicians. They meet with them at the hospitals. Their terminology is dialed in for them. They have things geared so that it's most attractive to physicians. And if you do a good job of that, it actually repels other people because doctors are used to being the smartest people in the world. They want to see scientific footnotes and research behind every single claim and the level of detail a doctor might want to see before investing and the attitudes they have and how they want to be treated and how their time needs to be respected might be completely different than a law firm partner or um, an uh, individual who has had an exit or has a big family office. So you really need to dial things in if you want to be effective. Otherwise, you're doing things in an average way that's not optimized. We have a couple more questions up here. What's a standard contemporary GP contribution to a fund and percentage of capital? Usually 10% is what most people are, are putting up, but you don't want to be average. Uh, that's not something to shoot for. So I try to be much better than average. I try to do smaller deals and put up 15 or 20% if you're not getting momentum where you are now. I think capital raising is about getting 50 of your ducks in a row, but that being truly unique in several ways because average, you know, the average person has a very frustrating, hard time to, to raise capital. Uh, Constantine has a question about family office contacts in Calgary um, in our family office database. I can't look it up live here, um, but if you email my database division at team at familyofficedatabases.com, they can answer your question on that. We've got some nice pie charts on the website at familyofficedatabases.com as well. And I think I saw another question up top here. We have a strong REIT background I'm a huge PE fund sponsor, but the direct structure is sort of new territory. Um, I think direct is where the strongest trends are, so I definitely encourage you to dig into that and figure out what's a way, what is everyone else doing in your niche, and how do you have something that's superior. One member of the Family Office Club that's raised over a billion dollars in AUM in the past two years um, has very lean fees, so lean that their own investors say, why don't you charge us at least a 10% performance fee. Why don't you charge us a little bit more? You guys are working so hard and you do an excellent job. We don't care. We'll pay the extra fee because uh, it's about the value, not the fee. And they say, well, we don't want to stop raising $200 million a year. So we're not going to raise our fees. You know, things are going very well. And they took that long-term approach and it's really working for them. And I think that's uh, something investors always look for is that really long, long-term approach. 
Uh, David's asking, I know it varies, but what's the minimum amount of capital that it makes it worthwhile for an investor? Um, I'm, I'm assuming you mean the minimum investment on their part or the deal size as a minimum. And I love this story that I shared on the Family Office podcast. If any of you are podcasters and you've got your phone on you, if you can search Family Office podcast on your podcast app and subscribe there, I'd love to keep in touch with you that way. But to answer your, your question, there's a story that came up at our Family Office Investor Summit earlier this year where somebody said that they tried to raise a $30 million deal and fell on their face. And they put a ton of energy into it. They didn't raise anything, and they failed. Um, and and it reminds me of another story I want to tell you after this that I think will help a lot of people on the call. But they failed at doing that. So then you said, okay, back to the drawing board. What do I do to build credibility, build my capital raising muscle, figure out how this gets done? And he said that he bought a $110,000 deal next, and he did $55,000 of that $110,000 and syndicated the rest to six different investors for about $9,000 each. So it was a crazy small deal. But the investors, you know, he was honest with them and said, hey, this is my first deal, and I'm going to grow with you. He then did a $400,000 deal next, six months later or eight months later, I think he said. Then he did a $800,000 deal, which by chance went very well, um, and returned a couple million dollars to his investors. And by doing that, he was able to jump up to a $10 million deal. And his last comments at our event was that he had either just closed or was working on a $30 million deal now. So the point of it is that, the investors who came in on the first deal might come in on the second and they might re-up on the third. It's not like they're tapped out after a $9,000 investment, but by starting small, you build your processes, your investment contracts, your momentum, your track record. You can say you're on deal number four now when you get to 30 million versus this is our first deal. Uh, so the more sophisticated of an investor you go to, the more you better have your act together or they're just not going to respond or take that second meeting. And we had a pitchdex.com new client this week who uh, may or may not be here on the call, um, but of course I won't say their name, but they just started raising capital and they're going for an $800 million raise. And they said, oh, I'm breaking up into parts. The first part's $190 million. And they said, well, you know, let's have you come to the capital raising workshop next week in Toronto or watch the HD version through the member portal or watch it live stream if you can't be there in person because going from zero to $800 million is like saying, hey, I want to go play one-on-one -on -one you know, with uh, Kobe Bryant and you've never picked up a basketball before. Like, you're, you're just going to get slaughtered. It's not, it's not a good idea. So you really need to figure out how to hit singles and then grow from there over time. Here is another question up here I want to grab before it gets buried. The challenges of pre-revenue raise versus post-revenue. I think the number one challenge when going to family offices is that they're used to valuing things on a multiple of profits. And they might look at a $1 million a year in profit company and say, okay, five times profits, maybe we think you're worth $5 million or $4 million. But the conflict I see is a lot of VC and pre-revenue groups, they come out of the gate saying, hey, we got the software, some tech, some IP, we've spent nine months on it, and we think we're worth $5 million. They don't have revenue, they don't have profits, concept isn't proven, the team isn't proven. Really hard for families to get their brains around that from valuation. So the trick is to go to families that already know your space, and just by having them as an investor, you're more likely to succeed. They're going to open up distribution doors. They're going to help like a shark would on Shark Tank versus just raising capital. Um, also, you can structure things as a convertible note or if you at least have some revenue as a royalty or a debt note so that you can ease their thoughts about am I ever getting my money back or how long is it going to take to get my money back. Otherwise, you know, it could be 10 years or 12 years until you have that exit 
and it could fail. Um, so either scenario might not be very appealing. So you have to de-risk that for investors, I believe. Here is uh, another question. When raising capital for tech software direct deals, what type of fee structure are you seeing for Series A? Uh, convertible note, most often, but it just depends on how sophisticated the investor is. Uh, if they know your space well and they know they can add a lot of value and they like you a lot, they might just want straight equity to participate in more of the upside, uh, which they often would get if it's not a convertible note. Uh, question from Grant. We manage closed and open-end real estate funds. Family offices like to be in control. How often are they willing to step into a passive equity role for enhanced diversification? Yeah, it's a great question. So I found that families at 5, 10, 20, even 30, 40 million don't have too many options on having full control of everything in their portfolio and they can't really have the mindset of like, hey, we're only going to do things we can control, at least not at the 30 million and under. And so the larger the family, the more likely it is they're going to want some sort of control or at least transparency through working with an independent sponsor type instead of working through a blind pool fund. So I think that's important to know. Um, and it's interesting, if you go to a family that made their money in real estate, they might have a huge percentage allocation to real estate, but because they know it, they might have the attitude of, well, we can just do it ourselves, so why should we allocate through you? So your offering has to be that much more compelling. It has to be that much more unique in the marketplace. But if you have something truly unique, they're going to recognize it as such much more quickly than the guy who made his money in manufacturing, and you might have the most amazing thing in the world, but if it's dialed in to appeal to the real estate family, it might confuse and go right over the head of somebody who made their money in manufacturing. So I think it's most important to know what type of family office you're going to and then customize things to be most appealing to them. What are your thoughts on attaining anchor investors for an emerging manager with top decile returns? You know, my thoughts is that uh, there's no other good, there's no other better way to do it than getting an anchor investor. You can add credibility give them a break on fees for every million they put up before you get to a certain level. I think it's an excellent idea. I think that far too many people fail to raise capital because they're stingy on their fees, their terms, they're not, they're not flexible, and then they never get to really exist as an investment firm. Everyone starts an investment firm because they're a great idea, but if you don't have any money to invest, it doesn't matter how great your idea is. So one of your partners should be the head of capital raising, or you should have a uh, a JV with someone or you should have some strategy and that's what our capital raising workshops uh, talk through is you know, about 30 strategies per day and if you miss that at the beginning we have four types of capital raising workshop events that are small group exercises you fill out worksheets you adapt the idea to what you're doing we have one on Wednesday next week called capital raising catalyst in Toronto if you want to see what we cover there it's at familyoffices.com forward slash capital um, you can check out uh, what we're going to be talking about there. But if you're on this webinar, you very likely would be greatly helped by the workshop. And we're so confident after doing 40 of them that we guarantee you'll love it. If you, if you go and you sign up and you pay for it and you don't love it and you don't get a couple thousand dollars of value for it, we'll just give you your money back uh, on the price you paid to come because pretty much no one ever does that. So there's no risk in us, in us saying that. Here's a question again from uh, Constantine. Is it better to attend the capital raising workshop or the April summit in London? Uh, the best thing is go to familyoffices.com. We have 25 events per year and likely one or two of our events are in cities near you or where you live or where you're planning to go to raise capital. I would go to the ones that the topic is critical to you, like our real estate summit in Dallas coming up. If you're in real estate, capital raising workshop, 
We only have one or two more uh, this whole year, so I try to make that one on Wednesday in Toronto. But then I'd look at what events are regional or local to you, and you can. the shortcut is to look at that homepage of familyoffices.com, and the one that shows city pictures are investor summits, and the symbolic pictures are the more uh, capital-raising workshops. If it shows somebody at a boardroom table or a blueprint, those are the workshops. Here's a question about how do family offices feel when institutional investors are already lining up for Series B, but the company still needs Series A, from Aaron. Um, well, everybody claims to have investors lining up, or we have a great interest, but you know, the difference between a good and bad idea is a deposit in the bank account. You know, it's easy to say we have interest, oh, let's keep in touch. It's a polite thing to say, oh, let's come back when you're on fund three or when you hit 100 million. You know, what else are they going to say? You know, most people are too polite to be brutally honest with feedback. And it's one benefit uh, in the family office club. We try to say it in the most polite way possible, but we're pretty candid. If someone's materials are horrible, we tell them in a nice way, you have to redo this. It doesn't do you justice. You have 10 years experience, but the materials look like $10, right? And uh, Steve Jobs is big on imputing value upon the iPhone by the beautiful packaging. Well, it's the opposite. You're imputing something on your, you know, your capital raise by the quality of your materials. And whether it's good or bad, you know, it depends on what you're saying, the words you're using, the graphics, et cetera. What should you do every time you ask an investor for time? So Chris is helping me out by reminding me of these top questions here on the screen if you're following, following along visually. Um, so essentially, every time that you ask an investor to meet with you or get on the phone, you should be crystal clear on what you do and what action you want them to take. Are you wanting them to get on the phone with you, to meet with you? After the meeting, what do you want them to do? But no sophisticated investor is going to get on the phone or meet with you if they don't know why they're meeting. Like, they don't want to just brainstorm or catch up or, hey, let me pick your brain or I'd like to just tell you what we do. It's like, well, get to it. What do you do? And um, I just recorded a podcast episode because I had a family office club member and we've got, you know, 800 and, and some members at this point, you know, paying the 199 a month or so for, or 299 a month for membership, depending on what level they chose. But uh, they said, hey, can we get on the phone for 30 minutes? And I said, well, you know, I've got several clients on board and I'm traveling this week, so I'd, I'd prefer to see the idea via email first and we can get on the phone if needed or if appropriate. And uh, they were kind of, you know, a little bit put off, honestly, of like, oh, well, you know, I really want 30 minutes of your time, but like, I told him, like, look, I just need to know what, what we're going to be talking about, because if it's joint venturing or me selling 20% of my company to you, then we might as well not have the call, or I should have someone on my team if it's about pitchdex.com or membership, et cetera. And um, I tried to explain them in a nice way, like investors are going to have the same expectation. You always have to say what it's about, because the busiest, sophisticated investors won't spend time on something without knowing what it is. Just pretty logical, but it, it happens uh, over and over again in our space. Mortgage fund is 20 million from accredited investors. Are we too small to work with your group from Jeff? No, for sure not. We have people that come in and we do a survey. You'll see at the workshop, you're there. We survey the audience in real time so you know who's there to network with. And about a quarter of the room has raised 25 million or more in the last year. About a quarter has raised, you know, three to 10 or five to 10 or five to 20 in that range. And then probably around 25, 30% have never raised any capital but they need to do so now. They know that's their next level of growth. And if you can become highly specialized in capital raising, you're going to grow your net worth greatly or you're going to be worth, you know, two to 500,000 a year in the marketplace or much more because of your specialization in raising capital because a lot of people don't know how to do this. And we don't do placement agent work 
because there's a thousand placement agents out there that will raise capital for a, an amount of the percentage of what they raised. We try to help in ways that nobody else is. So that's why we have pitchdex.com, familyofficedatabases.com, the membership at familyoffices.com forward slash association is we can help you move through the jungle faster and more effect effectively. And we're very confident in that. And it's just a unique game to play in the marketplace while everyone else uh, has the model of being a placement agent and that's the only way they help. One question here is how to partner up. Um, you know, the best way to get to know us would be to be a member, submit your materials for a review. I'll, I'll review them every quarter and that way I'll get to know you really well. If I see some way to partner or JV, then I'll point it out within that quarterly review. Uh, or fill out the form on pitchdex.com to schedule a call with Andres and then we can help you in a more hands-on fashion. Those would be the two most direct ways. Um, another question here, are family offices trending towards the cannabis space or is it still too early? So much capital is being raised in the cannabis space. Um, a lot of it from private investors, some of it from family offices. You know, some of it comes down to personal views and like almost a political social view of why someone would have interest. Some just kick themselves for missing past trends uh, and thinking, hey, we might, uh, you know, we, we might have missed the boat on this last trend or two, so let's just get on top of this cannabis thing. Whether we like it or not, it's a reality, and it's like the invention of some new industry where if we're in early, we think we'll get better returns. But also there's a lot of talk, and people aren't sure what to do or who to trust. Uh, and so a lot, a lot of times people talk about it because they don't have a high-conviction strategy or they're still questioning what the feds are going to do and they don't want to invest until then. So a shortcut would be going to local investors, agricultural investors, or ones who are publicly said that they're investing in the space, or to find a great deal in JV with a publicly traded company in the space, or a private equity fund in the space. That'd be a few ways I'd try to make progress there. I would also try to position myself, because that's how I've grown the family office club, is try to get that grizzly bear positioning where family offices are calling us nonstop. We've had, I think, three or four leads this week uh, alone, if not more, where people are calling us to get help setting up their family office. How do I get access to direct investments as an investor, et cetera? And that's because we've written the books on family office, on family offices. We have a book called How to Start a Family Office. We have a family office podcast. So when people look for it, they find us, and we're able to potentially work with them. Um, so I think that is uh, one thing to keep in mind is to position yourself well. Now we had one more question up here I wanted to get across. Um, finding individuals to work with on business development. Um, you can do that through our capital raising workshops or at our, our events. We have people there who are placement agents, who can help in raising capital, who are third-party marketers. You also might find that you could create a joint venture, a partnership, bring on talent to your team, or build an advisory board through the people you meet at the Family Office Club events. Obviously, at a capital raising workshop, where we're going through 30 strategies in a single day on how to raise capital, those people are going to be people raising capital, not investors. The other half of our events, the investor summits, are the ones where you're going to be able to network with investors, get to know with them, meet with them, and potentially do business over time with them. But at the worst case, when you come to an investor summit, you get to hear from 30 investors in a single day what structures they like, fees they prefer, how to work with them, how to get their attention, what their e email inbox is like, and the insights you get from that one day might be equal to the insights you get over a whole quarter of meeting with investors live face-to-face. -face. So I really encourage you to look at it that way as well. The knowledge flowing through that room, if applied, is highly valuable um, and hard to get in such a compact frame. 
Uh, I get bored sitting at events too much, and if somebody speaks for 45 minutes, it drives me crazy because if they're a horrible speaker or they talk about something that no one cares about, then I just want to leave my own event. Uh, so we don't allow that. We have 12-minute talks, three minutes for questions. We have discussion panels with four to six people on them. We like things to keep moving. And if I find myself getting bored or annoyed at the speaker, we just blacklist them and they never speak at our events again, and we try to keep the momentum going. So out of 35 speakers at each event, probably 30, 32 of them are excellent, and then we're always uh, curating that for the next events over time. Let's see here. We had a couple more questions coming here. Um, looks like the questions are starting to slow down. Let me see if there's one or two we need to cover from the list of questions I wanted to make sure we go over. Um, let's see here. So basically, a simple mistake that costs firms well over $100,000 is the area of focus. They might say that we're working in five states and three different strategies, and it makes for a convoluted strategy. It's harder to understand your value. People don't know what deal flow to send you. They don't know what box to put you in. And then is it really credible with a three to five person team or even eight person team that you could be running three strategies in five states? I know a group that only buys one type of commercial real estate in one city in the Midwest, and they closed seven deals just in Q4 last year. They're killing it, and they're doing awesome. And I don't represent them. It's just I like to see out of 6,500 people a year coming to the events, what stands out? Who's doing amazingly well? And cherry pick that out and either do it within the Family Office Club, share it within a webinar on the Family Office Podcast, and you'll start to see the same thing if you come to just four or five out of the 25 events per year that are near you. Uh, you'll start picking out those trends as well. And I think that that's question number seven here, what stands out? And to me, it's any time you can show in your actions, your structure, your branding, your team, your positioning, your thought leadership, anytime you can show that you're in it for the long term and you're committed to honing your craft and you have a very focused, clear, compelling strategy that really appeals to a targeted investor, then that's going to make you stand out. Anytime you can be long-term greedy, have a great, well-thought-out structure that's more aligned, it can be great because family offices aren't cheap. They don't want to pay low fees because they just think they should pay as little as possible. It's just they don't want to pay the price of a Rolls, Rolls Royce and get a Mercedes. You know, they want to make sure that what they're paying for is for value and they don't want to pay you a lot for losing them money or breaking even. And that's why a lot of times um, if you use a normal structure, it might mean a 2% acquisition fee and then you're only putting up 2% as a GP, but your acquisition fee might be on the whole deal and you basically have zero skin in the game because you might be charging them a management fee and you're getting 2% of the whole deal at closing and then uh, you, know, you basically have taken your skin off the table in the first 9 to 14 months and it doesn't matter if the investor does well or not. Besides building your track record, you're not really aligned. If things didn't go well, you're not going to work nearly as hard as if it really hurt when losses were there, but it really paid you well when the gains are there to, to motivate you in the maximum way possible. Uh, the three biggest issues uh, for PitchDex.com, this will be probably the last question I'll go over, and I have a one-minute closing here. Um, and Jack, I already covered the wrong way to use a family office database, but essentially it's blasting a whole bunch of people and playing a numbers game. It should be used to build real relationships. That's how business gets done. Just like thought leadership you produce, a speech you give, it's all about building a real face-to-face -face relationship and doing a video call or meeting in person, not just going broad. Uh, the three biggest mistakes that clients of PitchDex.com make, uh, the first one is that their materials don't do them justice and they're actually hurting them. The second one is they don't have a one-pager. They have a pitch deck, but they have nothing concise 
that then get someone motivated to open a 42-page pitch deck, which should have only been 12 to 15 pages or 19 pages at most in the first place. Uh, that's a big mistake. And then uh, the third mistake is not having any visual of their compelling uniqueness in the marketplace. You should have your five-step secret sauce or what is compelling, something related to your one-liner. Just visually, when you look at the one page or the pitch deck, someone sees it and they say, oh, I get it. That's how you source the best deals in healthcare and work the upside on them, et cetera. All right, here is uh, pitchdex.com. That's what we do for clients. Uh, but you can see that at the website, so I'm not going to stay on here, uh, this slide for long. And I am recording this. I'm happy to share the recording link with you. Um, if you're following along, you can click on this link um, to check out what our membership includes. But essentially, uh, what we offer in the Family Office Club is a private club. We have 1,750 registered investors, and that number is always growing. So we're updating it every, every six months or so on our website. We have 800 and some paid subscribers, which starts at just 199 uh, per month, and essentially what we have done is developed a platform that will help you raise capital more effectively. And if you come to our events over, let's say, an 18-month uh, period, we're going to completely transform how you raise capital, and we're going to change how you think about interacting with investors. We'll probably change your focus that you are giving to investors uh, in a couple ways, and it's going to help you and making more progress for every hour that you spend on capital raising because everybody has a hard time raising capital. It's not unique to your situation. It does take five, ten times longer than you'd expect, et cetera. And what we've done is bundled together many different benefits. They're going to help you move 10, 20 miles per hour through the jungle. If you've never raised any capital, then no, we're not going to help you raise $800 million in the next three months. That's not happen for, happening for anyone uh, anywhere. Uh, but we are going to help you move faster, make better use of your time, and for $199 a month, you really can't lose with what we've bundled in here. There's 25 live events per year. If you can't attend, you can live stream it. We've recorded over 350 now recorded investor interviews, um, and you can listen to those interviews and see what they ask for, complain about, prefer in their structures, etc. We have a free customer relationship management software tool we could get you set up with the same day you join if you'd like. We have 35 now exclusive webinars on capital raising, family offices, your materials, influence and persuasion, choke points, et cetera. Those are all in the member portal. Probably most importantly on the benefits besides the live events, we review your materials every quarter and we'll give you a four to five page analysis and feedback of what you need to change in your pitch deck. This does not mean you need to be a client of pitchdecks.com. This is a membership benefit you get for $199 a month. And I don't know anyone else that offers this even for $2,000. We'll review everything, analyze it over three to five pages, and you'll have very actionable, practical advice that's not biased by an employee who is looking for you for their paycheck every two weeks. We're just telling you the honest truth on what we would change if we were in your shoes. We have a service provider directory listing on the website. We give out a regional directory of 100 local investors to you when you join membership and go through your walkthrough of the member portal. And then we also have capital raising and family office certification programs you or anyone on your team can complete online. The only other thing I'd mention is that this membership's for your team. So if you can't go to one event, a team member could. You could go to the events. Your junior team member gets this capital raising certification program done. And I think that uh, that is something that's a combination of benefits that I really don't think is being offered anywhere else in the marketplace. Uh, if you want to get started today, just go to familyoffices.com forward slash association. It's familyoffices.com forward slash association. 
We think you're going to love the membership. We'd love to see you in Toronto next week, London the end of this month, New York and Dallas next month. And uh, you can see all of our events coming up at familyoffices.com. You can see the Toronto Capital Raising Workshop at familyoffices.com forward slash capital. So thank you for everyone's attention here today and for your time. Uh, we are recording this. If you'd like to see a version of the recording, just reply to the email where you heard about this webinar and we can get you the recorded version. We hope that you've gotten the books from capitalraising.com and familyoffices.com already. And if you're a podcast listener, please subscribe to the Family Office Podcast. And we hope to see you soon. This is Richard Wilson. And uh, take care and let's keep in touch.